This is the Oanda Podcast. You're listening to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, talking to Oanda senior market analysts from across the world. And today I'm joined by Craig Earlham in London. Good afternoon, Craig. How are you doing? I'm really good. How are you? Very good, thank you. It is, of course, non-farm payroll day. And I have to say, looking at the numbers, the latest jobs figures are pretty disappointing for November. Non-farm payrolls increasing by just 210,000. And that was versus an estimate of somewhere around the 570,000 mark. The US Bureau of Labor Statistics says there's been a decline in employment in the retail sector. But on the upside... It said there had been a rise in hiring across areas such as uh, professional and business services, as well as transport and warehousing. And Craig, I was thinking, I mean, this is, you know, disappointing as a number, or is it just the usual ebb and flow that we've been seeing consistently over the last year? Because every time we get a report, it's either above expectations or under expectations. And I'm not sure I even trust these numbers anymore. Would you agree? Well, I think it's always difficult because we're in this environment where people are still returning to work post-COVID, where they're coming to work at their own pace for different reasons. Um, and therefore, I think it makes the data collection hard. The data collection itself comes from various sources, be that employers and households, which um, gives a strong indication of where the, the labour market lies, but it's not going to be absolutely perfect. Um, so I think we have to bear that in mind always. But also, I think the... The, the, the non-farm payrolls figure was poor and it was well below expectations. The As you said, it was 210,000 expectations from 550. So obviously that's well below expectations. But a lot of the underlying data, I think, was far more positive, especially if you're the Federal Reserve. What did the Federal Reserve ultimately want to see today? They wanted to see unemployment continuing to fall. They wanted to see participation rising. They wanted to see the labour market tightening, but also people returning, which is what those two things will have shown. They wanted to see strong hourly earnings, but they didn't want to see it so strong that that was going to stoke further inflation and fuel uh, fears of very high inflation that could necessitate the need for rapid rate hikes. And what did they get? Well, they got the unemployment rate falling to 4.2% from 4.6%, which is well below expectations of 4.5%. They had the labour force participation rate at 61.8%, which is above expectations and the prior number of 61.6%. The uh, underemployment rate at 7.8%, which has fell from 83 and was below the 8.4%. And and they had uh, weekly hours uh, at 34.8 above 34.7%. They had average hourly earnings year on year at 4.8%, which was meant to rise to 5%. I would argue all of those figures really fall in line with what the Fed will have wanted to see, which would give them comfort to pick up the pace of tape this month and also allow for rate hikes without needing to go too fast further down the line. They point to a strong economy that is maybe slightly overheating but is heading in the right direction and maybe towards a nat- and could move towards a more natural correction. They don't want to see labor force participation remaining low the labour market remaining very tight and wages rapidly increasing. That's their biggest fear. That would stoke much more inflation and necessitate much higher rate hikes. But the other thing we can't forget is the elephant in the room, which is Omicron, because ultimately that will determine how the next three to six months are going to go, not this jobs report. This jobs report tells us where things stand now, but in terms of what the Fed response and what the fiscal response is going to be, well, that depends on how vaccine-resistant Omicron is, how severe the symptoms are going to be, how transmissible it is. Those are the key factors in terms of what's going to drive things in the next three to six months. What this does is this puts the Fed in a much better position than they could have been in after today's report, should we say. How have markets 
reacted to these numbers? Well, I think the initial response, uh, as you'd expect, because the headline number, the, what the markets generally do in these situations, because you've got so much to unpack, what they will often do is they'll respond to the headline number and then they'll digest the rest. And the headline number is always the one that the first one that comes out on the squawk. It's the first one that you hear about when you're watching Bloomberg or CNBC, and and that's the non-farm payrolls. And what the markets did, they re, they re, reacted to the non-farm payroll disappointment. The dollar index fell from around 96.25 back to just below 96, and all. Then all the other data comes out that gets absorbed and then the market rebounded back and it trade is now trading back where it was prior to the actual release. And that seems to be the idea of what we've seen now throughout the markets. It's this it's this idea that, well, actually, the headline number's poor, but the rest of it's good. And on balance, I think that's a good jobs report. Indeed. And you've mentioned uh, Omicron and how important that is uh, when you factor in all of these numbers. And we're very concerned, of course, how Omicron could evade uh, the vaccinations and uh, natural immunity uh, within communities. And there was an interesting report earlier on this afternoon showing that the variant may evade some of our immunity. This has been reported by scientists in South Africa. And in fact, they've detected a surge in the number of people catching COVID multiple times. Now, that is worrying, even though many are suggesting, well, if you do get COVID from it, uh, the danger of going to hospital or mortality is much less than it has been in the past. It's still very much uncertain. And while these things remain uncertain, markets are going to continue to worry and ponder where we're going. And everything you've said there is absolutely correct. I mean, I think, I think the first thing we need to understand is the fact that we're talking about a very low sample size right now. So the data, the things that we are seeing, as you've said, more transmissible. It doesn't seem to be the symptoms are quite as severe as with the Delta, for example, and that would uh, that would provide some comfort, but obviously the transmissibility would uh, somewhat offset that. Um, the the vaccine, the vac- how vaccine resistant it is. I think we even heard from the likes of Pfizer and uh, and Moderna who are suggesting, who, the, the, the idea seems to be that maybe the vaccines aren't going to work quite as well uh, for various reasons due to the amount of mutations uh, that we, that, that, that this particular variant has, uh, particularly with the spike protein, if I'm not mistaken, although like I say, not my area of expertise. Uh, so, the, these are concerning, but we need more data. And until we have more data, then we're really just running off anecdotal evidence. And that's what we're seeing in the markets this week. Friday, big sell-off day. Monday, bounce back. Tuesday, sell-off. Wednesday, bounce back. To Thursday, sell-off. It's that it, This has been the week. It's been this seesaw action week because we get this little bit of anecdotal evidence and all of a sudden the markets react quite strongly to it. The firmer evidence is going to come over the next few weeks, and like I said, that will really determine how the markets respond. And I think the key one ultimately is the vaccines. If the efficacy drops from 90 95% down to 80%, I'm sure people will live with that and the markets will respond well. If it drops to 30 40%, then maybe different. So it, it, it's going to really determine based on the evidence we see and we need a much larger sample size because at the moment it's it's so small it's only in um we need a much broader much more wide-ranging sample before we can really before any firm conclusions can be drawn and until then these markets just could remain really quite choppy uh, it sounds dizzying uh, when you just went through uh, each day and how it chopped and changed like a big seesaw uh, over the last few days and we've seen that with the oil price as well the recovery though of recent days continues both brent and wti are up three percent today pushing brent back over 70 dollars so have those numbers recovered because of easing fears over omicron overnight or am i barking up the wrong tree 
Uh, you're barking slightly up the wrong tree. They sold off initially on the Omicron news last week, and they continue to really trend lower on the back of that. And they were starting to talk a little bit oversold going into the OPEC Plus meeting yesterday, and that's where things started to firm up. And even yesterday, we saw kind of the seesaw action all within in the space of an hour. OPEC Plus. I think the, the market consensus view, strangely, I must say, from, from my perspective, seemed to be that they were going to be very knee-jerk reactionary and that they were going to, because they pushed back the meeting two days to gather more data, that they were going to therefore change their output targets, which is 400,000 uh, increase each per day each month uh, between now and the end of next year. And uh, my view at the time was, well, why would they be so reactionary? They've baked into their forecast that we were going to see a surge in the winter. That's now happening and Omicron is obviously going to exacerbate that but they don't know how much that surge is going to be they don't even know if that's going to be a mass if that is going to be a massive surge We're, like the rest of us they're waiting for a lot more uh, data to come and that didn't arrive by Thursday so therefore they were going to be basing their adjustments on uh, very little information ultimately and there, there seems to be this binary idea that well what they'll do is they'll either cancel January's output increase or they won't cancel January's output increase the actual reality of the situation is that it probably wouldn't be that extreme maybe they would reduce it or maybe they would reduce the month on months from 400,000 maybe to 350 or to 380 I don't know uh, maybe uh, and that I think that would have been a more suitable uh, suitable thing to do <clears throat> if they were going to make a change but for me, I thought uh, I, my view was that they wouldn't make a change at this month, and then it would actually be the following month that they would probably do. It. But they were cleverer again. They they decided that they were going to make no change this month, and that's what the market sold off to. The market sold off because they made no change, and then it reversed course on this small caveat that came with it, which is, however, um, once we have more data, uh, they will make immediate adjustments as necessary. In other words, when they see what the transmission rate is, when they see how vaccine resistant is, when they see what different impact it has on the case numbers, when they see what impact it starts to have on demand and um, on uh, on how, how how much people are moving. They, they, they said, for example, I think the data showed that in Europe um, that people are, are less mobile uh, in recent weeks than they have been previously. And that's a sign that people are maybe staying at home or engaging less and that's going to weigh on demand. They haven't seen that yet in the US, but that could follow and in other countries as well. And I think once the data starts to point to the fact that mobility is uh, is reducing because of this, and if they start to see evidence that suggests that Omicron is going to have a greater impact on the on the demand slowdown and on the economic slowdown than what had been baked into their forecasts, which is what was priced into the their thinking for 400,000 barrels a day, then they will adjust it and they may not wait till the next meeting. I think that's a very sensible approach. It doesn't give the market the certainty that they want, but it gives the group the flexibility in the meantime in what is an unusual time. We need to know more information and I think it would have been extremely premature for them to make an adjustment yesterday on the back of that. And so oil prices are going up because... They know that OPEC Plus stands waiting, that they can make an adjustment any day now if the data if the data warrants it. And um, But OPEC have stood firm and been consistent. And I think all in all, this was the best result. And like I say, I was only surprised that the market was anticipating um, something so binary and something uh, so knee-jerk. We do live in absolutely fascinating times. And um, staying with Omicron for a moment or two, Craig, of course, here in the UK, We've got the interest rate announcement from the Bank of England in less than a couple of weeks now. And from being almost a dead cert, a raise of interest rates by the Monetary Policy Committee, because of Omicron, there are many suggesting that this will be the wrong thing to do and perhaps we'll leave it till next year. Is that still the thoughts of the city where you are? Yeah, so expectations started to shift going into these couple of weeks. And I think the day to the economy has been performing less well. So I think that was feeding into it. And I think the last week, 
the Omicron announcement really did force uh, the markets into pairing back expectations for how fast central banks are going to be able to ultimately go. Um, at this point, I think the expectation is that they will still hold off. There's a, a low probability based on market rates that we will see a rate hike um, at the next meeting. I think we're only talking maybe around 20%. The expectation, even as far as the February meeting goes, is far more certain. So I think the market's still pricing in uh, a more than 70% chance of a rate increase in February, but a low probability of that coming in December. And again, that's so sensible. Why would they want to rise in, raise in December when they don't know what they're dealing with? That's not to say, and this is the, the fascinating thing with central banks right now, they are not in the same place than they were in March of last year. Just because central banks may not be as quick to tighten monetary policy, they're not going to be quick in any way, shape or form to loosen it either. Inflation back in March last year was running at, what, 1% to 2% in most countries? Well, in the US right now, if, if I'm not mistaken, it's running above 6%. In the UK, it's running above 4%. In Europe, it's running at almost 5%. These central banks don't really have the policy space to be cutting interest rates or to be announcing unleashing QE. You're taking a massive interest rate and uh, massive inflation risk if you do that. So I think the best we can hope for from central central banks is they slow the pace of tightening and maybe, I don't know, cross their fingers and hope that they will be rewarded for that rather than punished. But it means that these markets are going to remain extremely edgy and there's going to be so much focus on the inflation data if the central banks are forced to to take the time and be a little bit more patient. But we're not going to see the kind of policy response we've seen before because they simply can't do it. Talking of central banks, Craig, we've got to talk about Turkey. Uh, yesterday we saw that uh, Turkish uh, President Erdogan named a, a loyalist as the country's new finance minister after the uh, the incumbent resigned after clashes over the, uh, let's call them unconventional economic policies that have intensified the currency crisis for the Turkish uh, lira. It is weaker than ever before, but the president is still sticking to his, uh, to his guns and... Uh, the, the central bank has intervened, though, uh, on the foreign exchange market, to be fair. The, the, the national currency of Turkey, the lira, has plummeted 45% against the dollar this year. But President Erdogan doesn't seem to be all that bothered. Can you explain what is behind this? It is so bizarre. Yeah, President Erdogan, he couldn't care less. I mean, I think it's safe to say that monetary policy in Turkey is an absolute car crash at the minute. And the, they are continuing to, to, to pursue this extremely unconventional... Uh, well, poor monetary policy and the lira is getting absolutely crushed. It wasn't that long ago that we were talking about the lira. I mean, when I say not that long ago, I literally mean middle of last month. The lira hit the the, the dollar hitting ten, uh, ten to the lira. Sorry, the lira hitting ten to the dollar uh, for the first time ever. And it's since hit 14 um, and we're now still around those highs. And times are getting desperate. The, t the central bank is still talking about cutting interest rates. Erdogan's still fiercely defending uh, the central bank in its pursuit of low interest rates, regardless of high inflation. And... Uh, and now the central bank's trying to use other unconventional tools to try and stabilise the currency markets. We've seen two uh, two interventions in the FX markets this week. Neither have been successful. Uh, they've both uh, we, the both they've both given temporary uh, reprieve for the lira, but within that same day, the lira has headed back towards the lows where it was trading at previously. Where right now we're, we're kind of we're seeing some jittery jitteriness in the lira, which is right by those record lows. So today's intervention has done extremely little as well. It's desperate times as far as the central bank is concerned. And ultimately, they are going to pay the price at some point. And um, they're, they're paying the price in the markets right now. Uh, but the bigger price is going to come down the road. And unfortunately, those who are going to pay the price 
are going to be those who are not responsible for it happening. And that's always the sad thing in these situations. Absolutely. Okay, let's uh, briefly look ahead to next week. We're getting right into the heart of uh, December now. What should we look out for over the next uh, seven days or so? I mean, to be honest, it's just impossible to look past uh, Omicron. The developments that we see there is going to be entirely dictate what happens in the markets. Uh, aside from that, obviously, we're going to be keeping close eye on what the central banks are saying. Uh, we've got the uh, RBA decision and the Bank of Canada decisions next week. So they're going to be interesting. The US inflation data on Friday is going to be uh, an interesting one as well. But in terms of massive data, we are it is pretty shy on that front next week. There's, but uh, I mean, we are at that time of month, the week after we've got the Fed on Wednesday, we've got the Bank of England on Thursday, the Swiss National Bank on Thursday, the European Central Bank on Thursday. Those two days are going to be huge. Uh, and that'll all come in the midst of getting more data on the Omicron variant as well. So I think next week could be a bit quieter on the economic side. But when Omicron is so front and centre, we can have an abundance of data and no one would care because ultimately Omicron is going to be very much front and centre. And maybe the following week will be different. But yeah, next week, it's quite clear that there's very few major data releases. And even if there were, who would care? Okay, Craig, have a very good weekend. We'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. This is the Oanda Podcast.